agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thanks, Trey. It's good to be back. Yeah, we've had a little bit longer of a hiatus because I was out in the backcountry away from the internet and uh, enjoying trail running and all kind of funness on my part. I don't know what you've been up to on your your additional week off. Um, but yeah, not, not that, not that much. I, I, we law school, we have a little ticks a little longer to grade papers. So I've mostly been grading through May and I'm just getting done now. Oh uh, yeah. See, I have, I had put the papers behind me. <laughs> I haven't put everything behind me. I I'm, I'm the chair of our department. And so there's, there's always a little bit of work. Uh, and right. administrators always tell you that it's non-existent. And then it's just like a little trickle that continues indefinitely for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> something like that. No, I actually, I love what I do. Uh, he said to make himself feel better. No, uh, <laughs> that's really depressing today. No, I really, I do. I'm just, I'm just coming down from not being in the wilderness. I like being out. I love running and trail running. And so I'm enclosed at the moment. So I got to get used to walls again and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, but what I will say is, is that we came back. I, I don't even know how to put this, Ken, to be real honest, but you know, there's weeks when we do the show and I think, man, we really need to dig into some kind of deep policy stories or things that have flown under the radar because there's not lots of big things going on in the country. And then you have weeks like this week where it feels like everything is happening simultaneously and that we have a a number of really big issues that are kind of intertwining with one another. And you kind of wonder even where to start and and what to add. And that's kind of how I feel this week. Uh, and what I thought we might start with uh, is is really the tragic death of uh, George, uh, George Floyd. Um, and I think most listeners probably have a little bit of an idea of what's been going on with this. Uh, but I'm going to put it into context because every time that I look at this, there's another angle to think about from my own point of view. Uh, and so to kind of just kind of give this a little bit of uh, context so we can uh, dive in and talk about it. Uh, earlier this week, an officer in Minnesota, uh, D- uh, Derek uh, Chauvin, killed George Floyd by kneeling on his neck while George, I mean, just tragically pled for his life. Uh, and the event is, uh, for better or for worse, captured on video. And the tension following the release of that video uh, has been building and building, especially given that this is not an isolated incident of the killing of an unarmed African-American man this year. Uh, and, and worse yet, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's just heartbreaking to watch George as he just simply repeats that he can't breathe, I can't breathe, and he's dying, uh, and, and then die. Uh, and, and so now what we have is, is we have protests occurring. Uh, now what, follows up with this in the wake of the protests is the police have a pretty violent confrontation with some pretty nonviolent protesters uh, shooting rubber bullets into them. Uh, And and this really hits at the heart of something we talked about four weeks ago uh, when we were talking about armed white protesters in the Capitol in Minnesota, which led to no police response. And on our Reddit, Mike had actually asked, you know, rhetorically, what would happen if Af- African Americans had behaved under similar circumstances? Because it was something that the two of us had talked about, Ken. And he argued that it would have gone badly. And I don't think any of us really uh, disagreed, but I don't think any of us necessarily would have thought the scope to which uh, he was right. This is clearly the case. And it's really kind of added fuel for the fire because now uh, you have this, this, very straightforward uh, juxtaposition between what happens to the protesters uh, for George Floyd and the protesters over COVID lockdowns. Now, this then even gets another bit of an angle because in all of this uh, comes to another ongoing feud, and we're going to talk more about this feud later in the show, uh, between Trump and Twitter and, or social media in general, but specifically in his case, Twitter. Uh, as the protests have continued, President Trump on Twitter vowed to send in the National Guard at the request of Democratic Governor Tim Walz. 
and at the end of his tweet, he uses this very loaded phrase, quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, end quote. And, and that's a language with a big racist past to it. Twitter identified the tweet as violating the rules about glorifying violence uh, and has graded out, although it's still there to be viewed if you want to click through on it. We'll talk more about that kind of the side of the feud, but it's worth pointing in here today. Um, we're going to see what happens today. That cur- curfew is going to be going into effect. The National Guard has been called out and will be on the street. Uh, making matters worse, early on Friday morning, police arrested a CNN crew live on air for really apparently uh, no reason that I could ascertain or anyone else could, and CNN um, protested it. Uh, and then right here in on Friday afternoon, the officer Derek was finally charged with third-degree murder. Third-degree murder is kind of a weird thing, something we might talk more about as well, Ken. Um, a little bit more familiar with it because it's both in Minnesota and in Florida. But statutorily, uh, third-degree mor- murder is where you have a killing, quote, with uh, the intent to affect the death of any person, end quote, but one causes that death by, quote, perpetrating an act imminently dangerous to others and uh, with a depraved mind without regard for human life, end quote. Uh, so it's kind of a weird, and this is kind of problematic because, there, I mean, the assumption here is kind of a really low degree charge for murder, and the other officers involved, uh, there's nothing to be yet be said. I mean, it's a sad sad day on on kind of all of the fronts uh, and there's a lot to be talked about here so ken with that kind of setup there uh where do you going to want to start with this oh boy there's so many aspects of this that you just talked about um i guess because i because i do teach law i i would cl- you know clarify one thing just about not that it's that important but the 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 language that you read about the third degree murder charge um that's often phrased in in many states as being um, somebody dies because the perpetrator has had a, a reckless disregard um, for for safety or for human life, um, and I, I think that probably does actually fit um, what happened here. I think a, a higher charge, a first or second degree charge, would imply that um, the perpetrator actually intended the death of the victim, um, and I'm not I'm not sure we can say that that's that's provable. Um, but I think probably it would be provable um, that there was a reckless disregard for the life of the victim. And so I, I don't I don't have any objection to the third degree murder charge. I wasn't sure if you were saying you thought that was too low of a charge. Uh, you know, to be honest, that's something I'm still kind of mauling around myself. But I am sure that that is not going to be seen positively, um, especially in light uh, of the other officers not yet facing any kind of uh, ramifications. Uh, given the circumstances. And so, and so yeah, I, at the moment, that's my only intention. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you there. Uh, politically, um, it's going to look like a too low of a charge to a lot of people. But I, I think legally, um, if, if, the, if the prosecutor charged at a higher level, the prosecutor would then have to prove that the officer intended the death of the victim. And I, I, I just I think that would be uh, maybe biting off a little bit more than what a prosecutor could actually deliver on. So I, that's why I'm not as bothered by the charge. I think the I think the where it is going to be problematic is, is that I think most people's response to watching the video is he has to be trying to kill this guy because to be killing George because you know, this guy is kind of pleading for his life and this guy just keeps bearing down on him and bearing down. How can he not be intending to kill him? Uh, yeah. I, I think that's going to be the viewpoint, you know, when you're just watching just the video. Uh, and, and, it, and and that's where I think you're going to have. So I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, the, the law in Minnesota is pretty clear here. You know, it's without the intent to affect the death of a person is the way Minnesota puts it. Um, which you're right is different than say I think the language you're using there is almost straight from the the Florida statutes if I recall properly. But yeah, re- reckless disregard is the standard language, and Minnesota's a little bit using slightly different phrasing, but it's the same same idea. Yeah. So I just yeah I think other aspects of this that are um, interesting. One thing you talked about, um, which I thought was was very um, on point and interesting, was uh, you know you see some different responses from the police um, when you have a, a group of um, unarmed, largely African-American protesters um, than what we saw in, in Michigan um, when when you had armed, mostly white protesters. Um, and one thing I wanted to add to that was that um, actually, I think you also saw different um, kinds of responses from um, counter protesters. So, you know, in, in Michigan, where all these armed, um, uh, uh, where the armed white protesters showed up, I think they really 
significantly intimidated um, a lot of people. Nobody would have really tried to start any kind of violence or, or mischief around, um, you know, all these armed protesters. Um, whereas I think there is some some evidence in, in Minneapolis. There's a video that's been going around today you might have seen um, outside of an AutoZone store where it actually looks as though um, it's it's more of a, a white masked um, counter breaking the windows as he walks by. Yeah. Yeah. In order to kind of start stuff that there's there's people showing up there who are not in sympathy with the protesters and who are actually trying to discredit the protests and make them seem violent um, by just um, starting kind of low level violence. And and I think that that led to, um, you know, in the in AutoZone case, it's just property damage. But but the idea that it was actually maybe outside provocateurs who weren't part of the protests that that, that started that that kind of uh, low level uh, law breaking, um, I think contributed to why the whole scene spun spun out of uh, control uh, as fast as it did. Well, and and you can't. I mean, I, I don't care how strong of kind of a law and order person you want to be. You know, on the first evening of protests, you have a clear show of force with tear gas, rubber bullets, uh, in, in a way that it, that is unnecessary. And, and I. The, the best read that I can have on this is, is that you have, you know, really angry police officers who are the best. The best read is that they're upset that they're in an untenable position. And at worst, they're upset uh, because their actions are, are too easily now recorded and disseminated. Um, but, you know, even if you're not going to have outside um, influences, as you're talking about, you know, it's difficult to say, you know, this is just happening in the past couple of days. I'm not really sure we're going to be able to decide uh, what's happening there. But I, I think we can say, and, and one of the things we got to be careful about is, he says, well, this is just a bunch of rioters. And the answer is really no. On day one, this was not a bunch of rioters. Uh, it, it, what you see happening now is is clearly uh, a response to what happens on day one with the police response. I, I don't think you disagree with me on that one. No, uh, no, I, I do agree. I guess maybe the reason I was also thinking about the role of outside provocateurs, though, we actually had a parallel event here in in Kentucky yesterday. In Louisville, yeah. Uh, in Louisville, yeah. So there was a uh, um, a young woman um, uh, uh, named, uh, I think, um, Brianna Taylor, a uh, young African-American woman. Um, police came into her home and shot her. Um, essentially for no real reason. They, they they actually were in the wrong home. So they they thought they were executing a warrant on someone else's home. Uh, they they entered into the wrong home. They, they shot and killed uh, a young woman dead. And the people in the apartment had absolutely no idea what was even going on. As a matter of fact, so her boyfriend calls of, 911 as he's grabbing his gun to say, we're being, you know, somebody's breaking into our house. Yeah, yeah, and and so this was another of these type of uh, um, really unjustified police killings, similar to the one that's been getting a lot more attention in, in Minnesota. And uh, and in Louisville last night, um, there was a, a big protest like the one in Minnesota. And actually, the police were reasonably well behaved at this one. But what happened was counter protesters showed up and shot uh, seven seven of the protesters, including shot one of them dead. Um, six of them are not dead. And and so I, I feel like that, to, to me, that's a big part of the story. Maybe it's partly because I'm looking at the Louisville story at the same time I'm looking at the um, Minnesota story. But I think, um, you know, in, in, in Minnesota, there's, uh, you know, definitely police misconduct or apparent police misconduct, as you're pointing out. Um, in Louisville, I'm not sure that's true. But in Louisville, um, there's, there's um, you know, very violent counter protest to what was actually a, a nonviolent um, protest against the police. Well, and this leads me kind of a question I, I have for you, one that I think that many want to uh, put out there, and that is is they, they want to see the story in terms of it's a militarization of the police hard stop period problem. Uh, what, what do you say to people whose argument is, look, this isn't, this isn't really about race. This is about police overreach. Um, cause that, that, you know, that has been making, that is making the rounds definitely. And I'm, I'm curious about your, your take on, on that response, especially in light of you're talking about counter protesters. Yeah, well, I think it's about both. I, I do think it's more about race than about police uh, overreach, um, because I don't think you do see police overreaching like this um, in analogous situations where uh, the, the protesters are white. Um, that that was really the, the beginning of, um, you know, when we were talking about uh, 
um, uh, the Michigan protests, but you could look back to things like the the Bundy protests out on the federal land in Oregon. You know, I, I think you don't you don't see the the police um, overreacting as much if race isn't a factor. But I also think it's true that the militarization of police forces um, contributes to this, and that the the Minneapolis police force um, wouldn't have been in a position to uh, overreact the way we've been talking about if they hadn't been um, so militarized, both in terms of the the technology that they have um, and in terms of the the psychology of how they think about these kind of problems. Um, but yet, you know, in 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 Louisville, I I you know I, I know that the, the the shooting the police shooting that started the whole issue in Louisville was uh, um, was was a bad uh, um, police uh, mistake that spun really out of control. But I, I don't think there's much evidence of um, uh, police really over policing those protests last night. It really seems like the violence that happened there was was more because um, the, there were there were violent counter protests. Yeah, I mean, there were reports in the Louisville case that there had been kind of paintball or what's called pepperball fire um, into crowds uh, as things were going on. Um, but yeah, no, it, again, is the best that I think we can tell at the moment. There seems to be a difference between those two. And, and that brings us to kind of another contour of this question. And that is, you know, in, in this show, we're always talking about American politics and policy. That's, that's part of our, our show headline. Uh, but really, when you start talking about things like police, and we were chatting about this and we're talking about the language for third degree murder, we're really talking about state issues because police forces are different based on the state that they're in. Do you think this is also demonstrating kind of the problems in Fishers in Minnesota specifically? Because, uh, you know, again, you're kind of juxtaposing that with Kentucky. You know, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I've, I've, I've only been to Minneapolis a couple times in my life. I'm certainly not an expert in the culture out there. The, the impression I have from a distance is that, um, you know, it's a it's a democratic state. It has a democratic governor. It has a democratic mayor. Um, I would not think that. Um, uh, you know, it, it's not who I would expect to be. Um, the elected officials are not the ones that I would expect to be encouraging this kind of police response. But I, I don't know. Um, I don't know enough about. Uh, and the governor, I guess, is African American himself um, and and a Democrat. Yes. I don't. I don't know why he would be. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I don't have any reason to think that he's encouraging uh, the police to crack down. Um, in these kind of ways on on communities, um, but I, I just don't know enough. But it, it does probably seem to me uh, that um, it would be more, you know, that, that there's aspects of police culture, and especially of police culture in big city police forces sometimes that are that are maybe um, you know more nationally um, uniform and maybe not as subject to regional variation, but. But I, I, I'm really just speculating. I, I, what, what do you think about that, Trey? Well, the reason I bring that up is, you know, uh, we have Governor Tim Waltz uh, is the Democratic governor in uh, Minnesota. And you know, he is the one who reaches out to Donald Trump. He is the one who'll be sending in uh, ultimately the na uh, the National Guard because he's the one who called it out. And, and so, there, I mean, he has to recognize when he reaches out to President Trump that there's an inherent risk. And, and I've been pondering and thinking about, well, why? I mean, what, <laughs> I mean, I understand on the one sense, there's kind of an immediacy uh, desire for peace. Uh, but on the other, you would think that he, as you'd put it, might be in a situation to be maybe even more sympathetic. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I would have thought so. I, I don't know why he hurried. I mean, maybe he just panicked. I mean, that's another possibility, too, that he really thought his city was uh, going to spin out of control and he needed to establish order. But um, I, it doesn't it doesn't seem to me like a wise move. I think he really upped the ante in ways that don't seem wise to me. But I don't I don't fully understand his, his thinking here. Well, and to kind of now circle into the conversation with uh, President Trump, right? You know, so President Trump. Yes, you know, immediately he's jumping on board with this. Uh, he seemed to, for the maybe for the first time, to have some sympathy uh, for, for the George for George Floyd's family and for what had occurred. Uh, and then he uses that phrase, "quote When the looting starts, the shooting starts." End quote. Uh, which is again, we'll talk more about the content of uh, Twitter and how that has related. Um, but to the best of my ability here, at you know, uh, going on five o'clock Eastern time. I haven't seen Governor Waltz respond or have any comments about uh, that language, which I think is also, I mean, you, you, you think that he would want to distance himself a little bit from that. 
Uh, but that certainly hasn't occurred yet. Yeah, I don't know. I know he gave a press conference about noon today, and I didn't I didn't see it or hear it. So I, I can't speak to what Governor Waltz said. Um, but, you know, it may be best for him to ignore Trump. I'm, I'm not sure I think he needs to respond to it. I think Trump is just trying to throw gasoline onto a fire here and to um, use this as a kind of a, a racially divisive dog whistle. And there, there may just be no benefit to anybody really engaging with that. Now, you know, right now we have things going on. We don't know what's going to happen overnight. We don't know what's going to happen in the morning. Uh, but one, one of the things that I had noticed was, did you watch the, did you watch the CNN stream of the team being arrested? I didn't, I didn't actually watch the stream. I read a news article about it. Well, it was, it was funny because my wife, one of the first things she asked me was, well, what, you know, who were the officers who arrested? Because it's an African-American um, reporter who's initially uh, arrested uh, as the whole team is getting arrested. And she asked me, she says, well, you know, wh- what were the who, who were the police officers? And even as I've rewatched it, I couldn't tell you uh, because they're all geared up in, in effectively army gear. Yeah. And. Who, who they were and why they and why they arrested the reporters. Yeah, saying. you can't even I mean, you, you for a couple of them, I couldn't even tell you what uh, race they were. You know, if you were to say, well, you know, were they African-American? Were they white? Well, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> you can't see. Um, they, they got even have masks on. Uh, and I think I think that was for me part of kind of the disconcerting nature is we, we've had a long conversation on this show about the two of us between some of the norms about um, journalistic integrity. We see this maybe coming into a little bit of a battle in our in our second story here in a minute. Uh, but in some ways, it almost kind of gave a face to the worry uh, that I think has sometimes just been a hypothetical worry about the objectivity of media when you have police officers just pulling them over, arresting them. What might happen tonight with uh, National Guard members? What do you think about how this impacts people's I mean, because again, this we're moving into an election season. How how does that impact that? Not to be crass, but it's an important question. Well, I think how people are going to view um, uh, police arresting journalists, I think they're going to view it through the um, prisms of their own preconceptions about police and journalists, right? So I think there's there's definitely some people who are always going to be happy to see police arresting journalists because they they like police and they don't like uh, the mainstream media. You know, I think there's going to be other people who see that as a, uh, um, a real uh, affront against um, uh, democracy and against the idea of police being public servants who should be held accountable. And I'd put myself more on that side, but I, I don't know that there's going to be um, many people whose minds are changed by that. I think I, I think a lot of people, you know, wh- when they watch that, it's going to make them feel um, affirmed in what they already thought about police and what they already thought about journalists would be my sense. Do you, do you think differently than that? You know, it's just both of those for me are just such vivid <clears throat> pictures and if there's one thing that's kind of in my radar of research is, is I think sometimes it's those kinds of vivid moments that are the most likely to have uh, behavior change and or uh, position changes. And, and so I just wonder how those, you know, um, George's killing and then the arrest, those are just really powerful images in a way that I don't think you make arguments for. Uh, I think they are much more emotional, and I think that's the level at which most people uh, make kind of their decision-making process. So I, I am a little bit interested to see. I'm not sure if it would be business as usual, but you bring up a good point in the sense of, well, maybe you see that and and you say hurrah because it's CNN getting in the way of a, of a riot. I guess I can't. Yeah, I think that's how, you know, if President Trump hasn't tweeted that already, I'm sure that's going to be his take on it. And uh, I think I think a lot of his followers, you know, will will agree with that. I, I, I guess I guess. So if I'm hearing you right, you're, you're suggesting that if anyone's going to have their minds changed by this, it's going to be conservatives who tend to be pro law and order that they may look at this and think um, maybe I should rethink how much I, I, I admire police or how much I, 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 I disrespect media and, and recalibrate that. Um, yes, yes, you're not thinking it's going to be on the other side. Yeah, you're not going to think it's 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 not going to be liberals saying, oh, now that I can see that the police are maintaining law and order, I, <laughs> I should I should have more respect for police. You know, so, yeah, yeah. maybe that'll happen. But I'm, I'm a little more skeptical than you. I mean, um, I, I think I think there's a constituency 
who um, doesn't like the media. And uh, and that constituency overlaps a lot with people who who like police. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how many of them, you know, well, I guess time will tell how many of them are going to have their minds changed by this. No, I mean, that's true uh, as events move quickly. Now, you know, the uh, the last kind of part of on this is. And I don't even quite know how to phrase this, Ken, but what? What do you what do you do from here? I mean, for me, I've already made my kind of position clear. Um, but as a the one element that I think is difficult here, and you you were the one who kind of brought it up, is if if in a democratic state this is what's happening, what do, what does that do? In other words, does it muddy the water for for Democrat elected officials to say, yeah, man, we control everything and we still can't get it right? You know, I, I, I'm not as um, uh, bleak or pessimistic as that. I, I think there's success stories in uh, police community relations in this country, and they could be in, in, in Democratic cities or sometimes in Republican cities. In fact, um, you know, here in Cincinnati, where, where I am, uh, in, in 2001, you, you may remember, I think you were here then. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, there were, yeah, yeah there, there were big race riots in the city. Um, it, it started because the police um, shot in the course of a year seven unarmed black teenagers, um, and 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 the seventh of the seven, you know, the city erupted into riots. And after that, um, largely because of litigation and court supervision, um, the the police entered into a consent decree um, with with plaintiffs who sued because of the the police violence, and um, it it um, it was judicially enforced by federal court, and it required a lot of reforms. And um, at 20 years remove, I'm going to say it's been tremendously successful. You know, we have not had the kind of problems in Cincinnati since the police collaborative agreement went into effect uh, under under federal court supervision um, that this city had, not just in 2001, but for decades before that as well. Um, so I, I think I, I, it's not to say that litigation is the only path to that. But I think that, you know, in New York City, for instance, when uh, Bill de Blasio became mayor, um, it wasn't really litigation, but it was just that he was the mayor and he imposed policies on the police that forced them to develop better um, community relations. And, you know, de Blasio today, I suppose, is a a polarizing and relatively unpopular figure, but I would have to consider that to be the the very greatest success of his mayoralty is that he's actually um, improved uh, um, police community relations in New York, and they were pretty bad um, when when he took office. Um, and uh, um, so I, I don't think it's impossible if you've got um, elected officials who are committed to imposing um, some some. Um, some values and some restrictions on police, or even if you've got um, courts that are willing to do it. Um, I, th- I think there are known paths for how to uh, have improvements here, and I think they can be pursued. You know, and that, you know, you're kind of giving a pretty optimistic view. And one of the things that I've confronted myself with, and so I'm going conf- to, I'm going to kind of confront you and convict us both maybe a little bit here, <laughs> see what we say is, <laughs> you know, I mean, is, is it easy for us to have this conversation about that? I mean, I can just imagine um, one of my African-American students, for example, saying, you know, Dr. Orndorff, the only reason you guys can even talk about this on this show and say, hey, look, maybe in 20 years, things will be a little bit better is because you're white guys who don't have to worry about it. And, and so I, I guess my question for you is in that kind of context in a year when we have um, across a number of jurisdictions, this kind of behavior occurring, I mean, is is this the kind of the tipping point on that front where yeah, I mean, it's great for us to have kind of a rational policy debate about this, but because I don't have to worry about TJ um, getting killed by police officers as he gets bigger because of his race. And in other words, so what, 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 what do you say to that? I mean, in other words, I'm going to kind of attack us from the left. Yeah, no, I think both are true. Um, I think you and I are, and, our, and our children are all... Um, great beneficiaries of white privilege in this country. And it's very unlikely um, that either of us or any of our children um, are going to become victims of, of police violence or anything like that. But I, I don't think that that, that that even if that's true, I don't think it it, it, it means um, that problems um, uh, for African-Americans are insoluble. Um, you know, it, with Cincinnati, I wasn't talking about 20 years from now. I was talking about 20 years ago. Oh, and, no, and I know. I was, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like say, from yeah, the point yeah, of yeah. view of the person in Minnesota saying, oh, good, another 20 yeah. years <laughs> and I'll be able to maybe yeah. look back. Right. right. Yeah, but but Cincinnati looked exactly twenty years ago, like like Minneapolis looks today, 
And um, it became possible after that, um, uh, you know, immediately after that, really, because in the aftermath of the big race riots that happened here after all the police police shootings in 2001, uh, th- there was, um, you know, w- within only a few months, litigation led to this consent decree and the consent decree has been enforced. And um, so I think reform came fairly quickly. Uh, you know, it came in response to a tragedy. And I think, you know, in, in Minneapolis, there's a tragedy now. Um, but there, there could be reform in response to that tragedy. And it could be imposed by the governor or the mayor. It could be imposed by courts. Um, you know, I think it's, it's you know, there has to be will, you know, any place in the country, there's not going to be change unless there's will to make change. But I think in, in places in the country, and it's been a bit of a patchwork, um, there has been positive change. And, um, and you know, Martin Luther King Jr., right, said that the, 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 um, the arc of the universe is, is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, it, things could, could go faster or slower. And in different localities, um, things can go faster in some localities than others. But um, I, I do think people um, have their consciousness raised by the types of episodes that we're seeing this week, and that that at least creates conditions where positive change is possible. So for once, I think you're actually outflanking me on the positive side, Ken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Normally, it's the other way, right? Everybody can... I'm being too optimistic about this. Uh, <laughs> and in this case, yeah. I think we reversed roles. I, you know, I, I will yeah. say kind of maybe in closing on this that um, uh, personally, I, I, I'm tired of teaching uh, introductory uh, American government classes uh, and, and having to try to assist my African-American students in, in, in the system in a way that just disgusts me. And, um, as a matter of fact, this, this past semester, I had an instant of a, a student who was asking me questions about, well, how should I interact? We were, we were doing kind of basic introductory, um, it's just an introductory class in, um, in law and police enforcement. And I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to lie to students about the reality of the, the universe they lived in. And in this particular student's case, my answer is like, look, if you do it that way, you, you know, you, you're going to get shot. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm tired of that universe. Um, but I, I don't know how much that adds to anything other than to say that I'm, I'm tired of it. This week, an item that would normally be getting a lot more attention, I think has been downplayed in part because of the tragic killing in Minnesota. Uh, Yet the two stories are intertwined. Uh, And I've already mentioned this, uh, is been uh, President Donald Trump's feud, I think, for lack of a better word, with Twitter. Uh, This week, Donald Trump signed an executive order in what he called preventing online censorship. So how did this come about? Let me kind of set this up. Uh, This week, President Donald Trump tweeted that mail-in voting would lead to an increase in the amount of fraud, a claim that he has made repeatedly and for which there simply is no evidence. In response, in a historic move, in the U.S. at least, Twitter did what many have hoped they would. They included a fact-checking link on his tweet to information on how mail-in voting has been studied and the minimal amount to no amount of voter fraud that mail-in voting has uh, has caused. As a matter of fact, uh, both President Trump and many in his uh, White House are mail-in serial mail-in voters. You might put it themselves. Uh, but as a result of that fact check, late, uh, later Trump would pop promise again on Twitter action against social media platforms, and the result is the executive order that was signed on Thursday. Uh, the executive order has three really important parts. Section one is effectively an argument. Uh, that the First Amendment ought to apply to social media companies, and that, that when they, quote, handpick the speech that Americans may access and convey on the internet, they cease functioning as passive bulletin boards and ought to be treated as content creators, end quote. It goes on to argue that the president has made his commitment to free and open debate on the internet a capstone of his presidency, and that it's a capstone of democracy, and that social media flagging content is inappropriate, or even more importantly, when, quote, Twitter now selectively decides to place a warning label on certain tweets in a manner that clearly reflects political bias, end quote, something has to be done. Well, what's the something has to be done? That's the sections two and three of 
uh, the executive order. Uh, and this is really where the real meat come out. I think, Ken, we're going to spend the, the bulk of our time. Uh, in effect, they want to overrule the Communication Decencies Act, uh, Section 230. Uh, in the words of William Barr, Section 230 should only apply to companies that are neutral. They keep talking about in terms of a bulletin board and not to those that restrict access to content. When it restricts his access to content, it becomes a publisher and by extension should be liable for the purpose of torts. In other words, uh, civil lawsuits. Section 3 might even be viewed a little bit more chillingly in that it wants federal agencies to review spending on these platforms. Uh, basically a threat, a not so veiled threat to withhold monies if the platforms are not doing what the White House wants. And that is not fact-checking. As I already uh, noted, Twitter then today, on Friday, labeled President Trump's tweet to be glorifying violence, putting it behind uh, a uh, kind of a hazy uh, mix that you have to click on to get through, uh, suggesting that it is uh, negative, uh, and therefore, I think, uh, responding uh, in large part to the executive order from yesterday. While this might be the case on Twitter, Facebook is taking a different tact. In an interview on Fox News, clearly targeting the president, in my opinion, Facebook President Mark Zuckerberg said, quote, I just believe strongly that Facebook shouldn't be the arbiter of truth of everything people say online, end quote. Ken, there is a lot to break out here in this executive order, uh, and clearly both politically and legally. So what's your take on this uh, spat? That's what I'm going to call it. Yes, I'd like to start legally. Um, you know, legally, I think like like almost everything else that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth, uh, this is kind of a big con or a big hoax. I think a big hype. It's it's political. There's virtually no legal significance to this order, and people people have been talking about the order in terms of that it's it's unconstitutional. It goes against the First Amendment. It goes against the Communications Decency Act itself. And I've I've been hearing a lot of that kind of commentary. And as far as I can tell, when I read the order, it actually doesn't do anything. So it, it's just a hundred percent hype and no operative part. And I and I I don't think it's I don't think it's unconstitutional. I don't think it goes against the statute. I think it just literally does. Does nothing, and uh, the 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 reason that I, I think that um, primarily uh, um, Section two thirty of the Communications Decency Act, which which the order talks about a lot, um, is a statute that says that uh, um, websites that uh, host content that's provided by third parties uh, are not liable um, for the content that the third parties post there. So in other words, Facebook is not liable for, um, content that its users post. Uh, Twitter is not liable for, um, content that its users post. Um, but, but the communications decency act also says, and always has said that that immunity doesn't apply if those, um, websites post their own content, right? So, um, if anyone posts on Twitter, Twitter's not responsible for that. But if Twitter puts its own content up on Twitter, then Twitter is responsible for its own content that it's putting up on Twitter. So that's that's also always been part of the Communications Decency Act. So if Twitter puts up um, uh, corrections or amendments or, or, or commentary on, on President Trump's tweets, which it's been doing and which has been aggravating him so much... Um, well, the, the, they never would have had any immunity from liability for that. If they, if they actually put up something that's defamatory and it's Twitter's own content, it's not content provided by a third party, um, then they always would have been subject to being sued for defamation. So it's, it's just the ordinary, ordinary libel law, ordinary invasion of privacy laws, ordinary copyright infringement laws, any, any kind of illegal content. Um, if Twitter itself puts it up on its own site, it never had any immunity. It's, it only has immunity for content that other people put up. And so when Trump says in this executive order, you know, I'm going to take away the immunity that, that Twitter had under Section 230 um, when it puts up corrections of my tweets. Uh, well, Twitter never did have any immunity for that. That's Twitter's own content. So I think that's the main part of the executive order. And, and I don't think it makes any changes at all. Um, the other part of the executive order, which I think also doesn't really make any changes at all, is he tries to bring the Federal Trade Commission into this and to say um, he's ordering that the Federal Trade Commission should look into whether it's a deceptive trade practice um, if, a, if a site like Twitter or Facebook says in its terms of service, um, you know, we don't um, 
we don't uh, take down content based on its political content, and then and then they do, uh, whether that's a form of false advertising. Now, again, that's kind of a nothing burger because it always would have been the case that if they were promising something in their terms of service that they weren't complying with, that could have been an FTC violation. Um, they never had any immunity from that. But also, they're not, they aren't, in fact, promising anything in their terms of service that they're not complying with. So again, it's, it's a, I think both of the main operative parts of the order just simply um, explain what the law already is and, and don't do anything else at all. Now, what is your take, though? Here's what I'm considering, and that isn't that this is unconstitutional otherwise, but rather that Trump is setting up an opportunity to sue Twitter personally. What do you think about that? Yeah, but he doesn't have that opportunity. I mean, he he's he I think he's setting up an opportunity to have it look um, for his base like he's going to sue Twitter. If he actually sued Twitter um, for anything that they've done, uh, they don't have immunity from that suit. But they would win that suit so easily, um, they'd probably be able to get sanctions against him for bringing such a frivolous suit because they haven't done anything that violates any any law. And and therefore, um, you know, if he says, well, I'm reminding you that you don't have immunity and I can sue you, then he's saying he could file a frivolous lawsuit against them. And if he did, then, you know, so what? I mean, they, they'd get it dismissed. They'd get sanctions against his lawyers. He'd have to pay their attorney's fees. Um, nothing in this order changes any of that. But again, I mean, that has been when you take a look at uh, President Trump pre being president, uh, it seems that his strategy is always to sue things. Uh, And so while I think maybe you might be giving the hey, here's what's going to happen as a legal expert. I mean, this seems to be his the world is a hammer and lawsuits are maybe the the world is a nail and lawsuits are the hammer for uh, uh, for President Trump. So do you really think he's thinking about this as rationally as you're putting it out there? Or- no, no, I don't. I'm not saying that he might well sue them, but I'm saying he could have sued them yesterday before he put this executive order out and he could sue them tomorrow after he put this executive order out. And either way, it's a frivolous suit that's going to be dismissed. There was nothing stopping him from bringing that suit before. There's nothing stopping him from bringing that suit now. The executive order doesn't change anything, and it doesn't give him any more chance of having the lawsuit be seen as non-frivolous. So do you think then that this is simply a an election plea, a, a, a get tough, a, a hope that he'll change the behavior of social media companies if they are scared of him? Uh, wh- what do you think the real goal here is? Yeah, I, I I think you hit all of them actually. I I think in 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 his heart of hearts, he hopes like it's like you know he can intimidate them into not um, putting correctives on his tweets. Um, that's not going to happen. He's not going to intimidate them. Um, I think the you know maybe his other thing that he's going for is that he thinks this will play well with his base because they they like him to be kind of a bully like this, and they they like him to be a puncher. And uh, you know, so I think you know he may get that benefit from it. Uh, one benefit he's definitely not going to get. He's not going to have any impact on Twitter's behavior, and he's not going to win any lawsuits, um, and he's not going to, his agencies are not going to bring any enforcement actions, um, because nothing nothing in the executive order changes any law that's relevant from the way it was the day before the executive order, and, there, and there's, no, there's no relevant law um, that would enable him to win any lawsuits, and Twitter and, and uh, Facebook and those kind of platforms, Google maybe, they, 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 they have good lawyers, they have resources, and they're, they're not going to be intimidated by this nonsense. So then what do you make of Mark Zuckerberg uh, clearly going on Fox News for the first time in history? Uh, to talk to the president and say, we're not going to do the thing you're asking us not to do. Yeah, I don't think it's because he's intimidated. I think it's because he's got um, he's the type that likes to curry favor um, and to stay out of uh, uh, political controversies. And, you know, another thing Zuckerberg did, uh, um, I don't remember if this, if he said this on Fox News or if he said this before that, but he he actually offered to let the government um, uh decide uh, what things should be taken down from Facebook and what things should be um, kept up on Facebook and to to absolve Facebook of any private responsibility for making those decisions. And again, you could ask, well, why would Zuckerberg do that? But I think I think he just looks at that as he's just trying to extricate himself from controversies um, for, you know, for for reasons that 
maybe it's his personality. He doesn't want to be in these controversies or maybe he thinks it's good business. He wa- he doesn't want to be a villain of the right or the left. And he's looking for ways to, you know, um, pass the to pass the buck to somebody else. Um, but I, I don't think any of that has to do with him being legally intimidated. I think all of it has to do with a combination of his personality and his business strategy. So now here. This is this is a broader question uh, dealing with the executive order. One of the other things that I see here, and and I've seen it kind of thrown around a little bit, uh, and, and that has been that it is anybody even before now should be aware uh, that Donald Trump takes anything that questions the words that fall from his mouth as anything but gospel, uh, as an evil human being, a bad, dirty, or rotten person, and uh, and so he's going to do something about it. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I don't think that I would have I would have seen myself asking this question. But do you think that you see in this executive order the seeds for a president who would who would make the case uh, that he is he is not going to give up power? See, I I can't stop looking at this executive order through the lens of um, telecommunications law. And it it is such a transparent hoax to me. It's such a it's such a Wizard of Oz that, you know, questions of the form, (laughs) questions of the form that you asked, you know, does this mean that he's he's going to actually be real and, and mean things that he says or even mean things that go beyond what he says? No, I see. I see no evidence of that. I I think he's uh, you know, he'll say anything. Um, and with 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 no no regard for um, you know, whether he can actually d- implement it or whether he's going to do anything. I mean, now it's a separate question. You know, what might he, might he want to um, might he want to try to find a way to stop elections from happening? Um, I, I think he'd like to find a way if he could. I don't think he could find a way. I think a lot of his rhetorical strategy against mail-in voting and things like that, which might be more on point than the than the Twitter order, um, is really not that he thinks he can stop it, but rather that he thinks that when he loses these elections, he can then claim that it was dishonest and rigged and stolen. Um, you know, I think I think that's a real concern, which all relates to him. You know, just his the way he tries to spin things. But I don't I don't think he's you know I don't think he's got any possible way. He could actually stop any election from taking place. I know I don't disagree with you. And, and further, I mean, I guess I'm asking some of those questions because I don't disagree with you on the on the side here that I don't think any of the laws fundamentally changed. I don't think that the I don't think Barr, when he obviously draft, well, his underlings drafted this, uh, were attempting to do so. But I. I three and three fourths of the way through. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, term one, it, it, it does appear to be a trend to me as a scholar that uh, it is in his meaninglessness that he often is conveying his most direct meaning. I think that's what I actually said oh, yeah. and meant. I, I do agree with that. I mean, I think if 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 your first question was, does this mean that he wants to stop the 2020 election from taking place? Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think that's that's what he wants. I just think he has it, it's it's not realistic. It's not possible. He's got no tools to do that. And I think the the rhetorical tools that he use that he uses all the time, they, they can't stop an election, but they can throw a lot of shade on the validity of the election. I think that's what he's really gunning for. So the hope is to have the the election just not have meaning in that sense. And therefore, he can claim a moral victory no matter what happens. That, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think he's, you know, thinking it maybe he can get more than a more, you know, maybe when he actually loses the election and, and claims that it was stolen and rigged and he lost it because of fraud. Um, you know, maybe he's hoping some somehow that, you know, there will be some kind of, uh, um, you know, some resolution that somebody can jump in and. You know, whether it's the Supreme Court or whether it's the, the, the U.S. Senate or whether it's the army, you know, that someone can jump in and actually say he's still president because the election was stolen. You know, maybe, maybe he's holding some hopes out that something like that could happen. That's not part of our ordinary constitutional process. But um, but I, I don't I don't see any way he could stop an election from happening. And I think a lot of uh, what he's been trying to do is just set it set up a predicate to try to discredit it after the fact and then see what happens. Yeah, now that I can't. Dis- While I don't disagree with you, I guess I have become more. I don't know. I'm more skeptical of of the of the extent to which he will uh, take actions. But 
once again, maybe you're being more uh, optimistic to optimistic. me. Let me throw it back at you then. What do you think he could do that could stop an election? Well, as a guy who studies the presidency, one of the things that is often thrown around, especially in kind of uh, historiographies, is well, what happens if a president just doesn't leave? Uh, what if a president won't go? Um, We've never experienced that before, and there's been a lot of discussion and what-if scenarios, but really, you know, because we're trying to be scientific, you can't, you, you can't really measure things that have never happened. Uh, they kind of just kind of hang out there as, as maybes. And so maybe I think I probably fixate on that a little bit more recently, uh, because that is something that in my field, we have often wondered, well, what if a president just said, nope, not leaving? And that's a... It, you, one would assume that the transition of power would have to occur anyway, uh, but it's we've we've never had a contested transition of power, and I think it's oftentimes in those moments where we lack precedent uh, yeah. that we see uh, the most unique or disturbing things happen uh, because there isn't an automatic uh, go to. It's kind of like having a a reflex, right? You know, it's gonna it just happens. You know, you hit me in the knee, and that's what happens automatically. Uh, but we don't have this for this process because it's never happened before. And I'm not saying that's a, a, a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, I think that's why I focus on it. You know, what if you have yeah. a president like Donald Trump who just said, no, I mean, as outlandish as that could be to say, well, no. Well, what then is the mechanism that happens next? Who, right? That, that's why I think what lingers for me. Right. But we still have a constitutional process where um, the Electoral College will meet. They will cast their votes. Their votes will be unsealed at the first meeting of the new Congress in 2021. They'll be counted and read. The, the, the vice president of the United States, Pence, will um, have to declare that somebody else um, won the Electoral College. Um, and there, there is a process there, although this has never happened in, since the early 19th century, where some of the electors, I guess, could be challenged at, within the Senate, and there'd be votes on that. But if that process plays out, you know, then um, you know, a whole, a whole, all the other institutions of government at that point will be bought into the idea that we had an election, it produced a winner and someone else is president. And, you know, maybe he could get the Supreme Court to intervene. Maybe he could actually try a military coup if he could get the army on his side. But I, I don't think he can do it without a lot of help from an institution other than the president himself that, 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 would, that would legitimize it in some way. I, don't, I just don't see how it's possible in the United States. Now, I don't disagree with you on that front. I, w- I just worry about institutions that do not have, um, well, I mean, I'm a libertarian, and so I worry about those institutions intrinsically, uh, but institutions that don't have uh, highly institutionalized processes. Um, I mean, but I, what you're arguing effectively is is that there is an institutionalized process. It's just never happened under protest before. Well, look, I mean, in 2000, um, Al Gore was the sitting vice president and the Supreme Court um, declared that uh, Bush won Florida. Um, he and still, that he still shows up. Yeah, he still shows. You know, Al Gore sits there in the in the first uh, day of the new Congress and reads um, all the uh, um, uh, electoral votes. And in fact, he himself personally overrules objections from some of the members of the um, Congressional Black Caucus who were objecting to the Florida electoral votes being read. Um, Gore sitting there in the seat and overruling those objections, and he counts all the electoral votes, and he declares that um, that Bush is, is is the winner. Now, I know you're, you're saying, you know, Trump is not uh, Gore, but, you know, Pence would be the one in that seat. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I you know, I, I don't love Pence, but I think, you know, for him to try to um, actually uh, you know, risk his entire career and reputation on, you know, in view of uh, the entire world, you know, trying to somehow steal the uh, electoral vote while sitting there in that first session. <laughs> you know, I, I don't see it. I don't know. I don't know. What do, you, what do you, I mean, you think you think, you know, what do you think Pence would do in that situation? Well, I see, you know, as you say that, I think you actually are, you are alleviating my, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine that Pence would do that. You were correct. Yeah. I, and yeah, I mean, Gore didn't do that. You know, we had a similarly contested election back in 1876. So there, there have been a few times when there were, you know, much more bonafide disputes about whether the election was legitimately won. Now, I, I don't think it's going to be that as close this time. And, uh, 
you know, um, and and you know, I don't. I mean, maybe there will be a bona fide dispute, but I I take it that all of Trump's Trump's rhetoric now is like a hail mary pass that he's just preparing for a cataclysmic defeat and trying, you know, in every way to say, you know, there was massive widespread fraud. You know, that would be quite different than what happened in two thousand, where there was a bon bona fide dispute that came down to only about how to count about five hundred votes. Right. Um, and and I think both sides were in good faith there. I don't think I don't think anybody was just um, you know not in good faith in that argument. Um, and it ended up getting resolved by an institution that, you know, I think even though a lot of Democrats, including me, um, did not think that was a, a, a the greatest Supreme Court decision, you know, ultimately the, uh, the, the, the court has the authority and the legitimacy uh, that they were able to resolve it. And there, you know, there were lingering criticisms of whether the court got the case right, but there wasn't really lingering doubt about who was president after that. Um, you know, Bush was able to take office and, and that was closed. Also in Kentucky, you may remember last last November, um, Bevin was talking like that. Do you remember the Kentucky? Oh, that, I, had, you, I had forgotten about that until you brought it up. Yeah. Bevin was, you know, he had started ahead of time um, trying to cast doubt on the um, legitimacy of the count in some of the urban counties. And then, in fact, it was a very close election. Um, and Bevin was saying, you know, he wasn't sure that the there wasn't fraud and he wasn't necessarily going to step down. And he maintained that for a week or two after he lost the election. He wouldn't concede. He said he was, you know, he thought he was the one elected. And then what happened was all of the Kentucky Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, started saying, uh, you know, Bevin, you lost the election. You got to step down. Mm -hmm. You know, and then, and then it became kind of un untenable for him after that. That is true. I, you know, as a matter of fact, that, that is probably one of the better uh, contemporary examples of that. Yeah, I just think we have, you know, I certainly agree with one of your points, which is that Trump has weakened our institutions and they're not as strong <laughs> as they used to be. But, but I don't I don't think they're in complete collapse. I think, our, you know, some of the most basic institutions, you know, the, 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 the Congress still meets and pass law, passes laws. Right. When, when we just had the big, uh, um, you know, four trillion dollar bailout, you know, Trump didn't just start cutting those checks himself. Congress had to actually meet and vote and authorize all that. You know, we're, we're, we're not we're not in a uh, we're not in a, a complete failure of other institutions institutions right now. I, I think what we're gonna I'm gonna label the title of this episode is Ken Gets Positive. Yeah. Trey explores existential crisis. Um vacation. <laughs> I'm always in a good mood at the beginning of summer vacation. <laughs> well you know on that note as we kind of finish up the show, uh one of the things that we always do as you know is we, we do the things, you know, what have we been watching, what have we been reading? I've done some weird things recently. I, I recommended some video games, uh, some uh, television show series from Amazon Prime. Uh, today, I want to get back. Uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, I had been uh, out. And as we were getting back, I've been reading. I don't, have you ever heard? This is an old one. Uh, Desert Solit uh, Solitaire. No, tell me about it. Well, Desert Solitaire is actually written in 71 um, by Edward uh, Abbey. And he heads out into and he, he works for the National Park Service uh, for a couple of seasons uh, out in the in, in, in the in the desert uh, reserve. And it's this kind of semi poetic look. It has a lot of tinges of somebody who has been steeped in 60s isms, uh, maybe a little bit of libertarianism all meshed together. But it's really kind of ultimately an, uh, an ode to the natural world and what we can learn about ourselves being in the natural world in a way that respects the natural world. Uh, and, and as an avid outdoorist, as someone uh, who loves trail running and hiking and, and kayaking, and it, it really kind of speaks to me. And so uh, I had, since I was not doing my normal set of things and I knew I was going to be uh, headed back out into the, uh, uh, the Smoky Mountain National Park, I hadn't read Desert Solitaire and I had just I had never realized how uh, how cool of a book it really was. And so if you want to do just something completely different, uh, Desert, Solita Desert Solitaire uh, by Edward Abbey. You know, I did once read an Edward Abbey book. It's been a while, but um, when I was when I was uh, in college, I read uh, uh, the Monkey Ranch Gang by Edward Abbey, which was um, I take it was the book that inspired the uh, the kind of environmentalist um some would say environmentalist terrorist group, uh, Earth First. They they got that idea from the Edward Abbey novel, the the Monkey Wrench Gang. And I, I should probably read more Edward Abbey novels. How, well, in the case, this case, just you know, it's not a novel. This is in fact oh, this, he, oh it's a this, nonfiction. This is what he he really did. He did work in a national park service. Um, so it is nonfiction. It's him talking about his time being out in the desert. 
so this is nonfiction in this case. I should have been more explicit about this. Ah. This is not a novel. Um, you're not going to find some gripping uh, murder plot or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is this is completely about uh, his exp- his actual experience uh, in the desert over the course of three years. Cool. Yeah. So, what about for you? Anything we should yeah. uh, should read personally? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Although I've, I I know I, I always re- revert to type, and I'm gonna. I you know how much I love reading Cold War espionage stuff, and I was at it again. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've 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 just been reading this book called The Lost Spy an American in Stalin's secret service. Um, it's written by an author named Andrew Meyer, and it is about uh, a spy named Cy Oggins. Oggins was a guy who um, grew up in uh, uh, Connecticut in the 1910s, went to Columbia University for college um, in New York City during the World War I era, um, then joined the army and, and went to fight in World War I, and somewhere along the way got recruited um, into, into Stalin's secret service. Um, he came in through the Comintern. He worked as a spy for, for um, international communism, first through the Comintern and then for the KGB later, um, uh, mostly in, in Europe, um, but he was an American. Um, and then because some of, the, um, some of the people that he'd worked with in the Comintern were Trotskyists and uh, Stalin turned against Trotsky, um, Stalin eventually um, called Augens to Moscow um, uh, thinking that he was going to, Augens went there thinking he was going to get another assignment, um, but then he was sent to the Gulag and he sent the rest of spent the rest of his life um, in the Gulag. And uh, so I was just reading uh, his sad story of uh, the rewards that he got from from Stalin for trying to spy uh, for Stalin uh, against the West. But he was yeah he was one of the one of the first um, American spies to spy for the Soviets. And so I mean so is this this is obviously not by him then so this is just about him. No no he's he's long dead. Yeah, he died in the 40s, but this is a recent book by an author named Andrew Meyer. And Meyer was able to write it um, in part by going to the Soviet Union and or going to contemporary Russia and looking through archives of the former Soviet Union. Um, and in part, Meyer was able to write it because Oggins had a son um, who Oggins's widow and Oggins's son stayed in the United States when Oggins went to to, to Moscow. And so the son is, was very, very elderly. I think he's in his late eighties, um, but he's, he was still alive. And so this author partly was able to, you know, go to Augens, um son who'd been a professor at SUNY Binghamton and look through, you know, whatever old materials uh, Augens's widow had left behind um, and then also go to Russia and research it. So he, it's a, it's a recent book. It's, it's all, but it's all research about things that happened from about 1920 to about 1949. You, your knowledge of that era is, is deeply intriguing to me, Ken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just love Cold War espionage stuff. I love to learn as much about it as I can. I can tell. I mean, that you, you, whenever there's just a default, I can tell that you, that, that the cold, you would just read about the Cold War all the time. If it wasn't for law. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that, you know, I used to be that way and I had some really good friends in my life who basically said, Trey, uh, not over, it wasn't Cold War for me. You know, you can't be that narrow. And so, um, she, as a matter of fact, would continually get me different books and be like, now, now you're going to read some poetry. And now, <laughs> and then one of the best things that ever happened to me early in my, in my uh, career to have some friends who were like, no, you, you're going to have to read some uncomfortable stuff. Uh, but I do appreciate that you can be so on point. Anyway, that's so cool. So kid. monomaniacal. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Well, listeners, thank you so much for listening to Politics, guys. Ken, it's been wonderful doing the show with you. And here in a moment, we're going to be doing the bonus show uh, for those of you who want to join us. Uh, But I also need to have a special kind of exit today, Ken, because um, this week I was talking with my brother. His name's Jeremy Orndorff. And he told me, he said, Trey, uh, I I love the politics, guys, and I love you. But you know that I'm poor and I'm never going to give you any money. So what do you say about that? And I said, I have never asked you for money, Jeremy. And he said, so, you know, why, why do you always insist on asking people? I said, it's not just asking people for money. You can also do things like, you know, share our episodes, rate us on iTunes and Spotify and do that kind of stuff. And he said, the only way I'm going to do that is, is if you call me out by name on this show. So, Jeremy Orndorf, I've just called you out by name. So I'm expecting a review of this episode and I'm expecting you to share it with 100 of your closest friends. And for everybody else who likes the show, I ask that you do what Jeremy does, uh, and that is share it. 
even even if you don't have money or the time to make work uh, uh, the funding for this show possible, it is you uh, sharing episodes. It's your word of mouth advertising. It really does matter the most. Uh, teasing aside, and and we really do need your support. But additionally, we also need financial support. Uh, and one of the great things about being a financial supporter is you're going to get access to additional content. And one of those is our full length supporters only Wednesday show. And that's what Ken and I are going to be taking on. Uh, and this week we're going to be t- talking uh, in part, we always seem to follow Israel Ken. And this week we're going to be taking a look at uh, Netanyahu. So if you would like to know more about what we have to say about the ongoing um, Israeli elections and uh, criminal trials, uh, now is the time. And you can do that uh, by becoming a financial supporter for the show. What you have to do is you're going to head to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go straight to politicsguys.com slash support. And that way you can join myself and Ken again on Wednesday. So head to patreon.com slash politicsguys and uh, uh, become a financial supporter so that you'll hear our bonus show on Wednesday. Even if you can't, we please, we appreciate sharing episodes, rating us on iTunes, on Spotify, wherever you get the show. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just some random thought you'd like to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We also strive for civil and rational debate on our Reddit, Bipartisan Politics, and we're also on Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show, bonus show, on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us then.